So if you're here for the first time today, what we usually like to do at King's Chapel is preach through a book in the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, work through what that particular book of the Bible has for us uh, in God's Word. Uh, We've taken a break from that, uh, and we're working through a summer series this year. Uh, We asked the members and regular attendees here uh, what questions you have, not in general, but of a biblical nature regarding our faith and the practice thereof. And we got a lot of really good questions. Pastors sat down and worked through them and chose several to preach through this summer. And we've already taught on a couple of different subjects. Subjects like, what is the unforgivable sin and the sin that leads to death? And are they the same thing or are they different? What does it mean like or look like to have faith in God, to believe in God? How can we as believers truly believe that God is sovereign in the face of Christian suffering? And today we have another really good question. And I'm going to paraphrase the question just a little bit. So if it was your question and you're here today, please don't get mad at me for not resetting it verbatim. But it was in concept or direction. In the Old Testament, God gave the Israelites the standard of the tithe giving 10%, and with it the promise of immeasurable blessing. Whereas in the New Testament, we have admonitions about giving joyfully and putting aside something at the first of the week. But in this context of giving, there's the 10% or tithe is not mentioned. So how should we as New Testament Christians today approach tithing and giving? This is a great question. One that, like many of the others we've already looked at, and probably the ones we're going to look at the rest of the summer, uh, many men of the faith, older and wiser and much more educated than I, have debated for centuries. So I encourage you to take what we look at today and continue to study the issues and concepts surrounding the question on your own. I really appreciated Lou's challenge last week concerning the question of God's sovereignty in the face of suffering. Uh, He said that we should all take the process of our Christian maturity seriously. That we should discipline ourselves to reading and praying and studying the Scripture and work on understanding, understanding better and more completely and more fully what God has for us in His Word. Have you taken that challenge seriously? I hope so. I hope that you're working on maturing your understanding on these hard issues that face us as Christians today. Please, Don't step back and rest in, well, it's over my head and it's too much for me to understand. God has given us the Scriptures. He's given us wise men of the faith that have spent years studying them. And there's a lot of material out there for us to to delve into and to dive into and to mature our own Christian faith. As we saw Peter asked us to do not too long ago when we were studying 2 Peter. I believe today through a proper application of Scripture, we can leave here with a pretty clear understanding of what God intends for us as Christians living in a relationship with a covenantal God right now concerning tithing and giving, or at least establish a foundation that through your own study you can continue to build on. So let's look today at tithing and Christian giving in the the context of three points. Maybe. There we go. I want to look at it through the law of giving, the love that results in giving, and the life identified by giving. 
I'm going to spend some time in each of these three, three points. The first point I'm going to spend more time in than the other two. So as we progress through this, don't think that we're going to be here till 2 or 3 o'clock. I'm going to do, this, do my best to get us out of here by 1.30. <clears throat> so um, let's start with the law of giving. Would you change Just kick the slide for me. It's not changing. So maybe it's not me. So we'll just look at the law of giving. We don't need the slides. Let's take some time today today to look at what tithing was and what what it was not in the Old Testament. We see accounts in Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy uh, of the Levitical law, the law given by God to Moses at Mount Sinai for, for His people Israel as they were preparing to enter into that land that He had given them. He directs in that law that His people should set aside from the first fruits of their crops and livestock a tenth or tithe of what they were going to make off the land and that that was to be given to the Levites as their portion in Israel. You see, Israel was a nomadic and agrarian society. So (laughs) there weren't a lot of different ways to make money. They didn't have cleaning businesses. They lived in tents, so there weren't any sheetrocking side jobs or painting side jobs. There weren't any muffler shops for their mules or donkeys and and they didn't have the internet yet, so there was no pyramid schemes for energy or vitamins. <clears throat> so pretty much your ability to make a living was proportionate to your ability to work the land and how much land you had. When Israel went in to take possession of the promised land, God determined who lived where and how much they got. He dictated where each tribe was to live and how much land each family received. And as this process was happening, no land was given to the tribe of Levi at all. You see, God had identified the tribe of Levi as being those who would work full-time in the house of God. And as the full-time workers in the tabernacle then and later in the temple when Solomon built it in his time meant that they were going to be the pastors and the governors and the judges and the counselors for the people of God. That's a lot of work. For the Levites who were responsible for doing all of that, they had no time to grow crops and to, and to uh, care for livestock. And so God also gave them no land on, on which to do so. So in an agrarian society where if you didn't farm a ranch, you didn't eat, we all know that if you don't eat, you don't live for very long. A couple of us maybe a little bit longer than some of the others of you, but not going to live very long if you don't eat. If you don't work the land, you're not going to be able to eat. So how were the Levites to be prepared, uh, be able to survive? The Levites were given an inheritance in the land, not through the land itself, but through the other Israelites. God said uh, to His people Israel through Moses, I'm going to reaffirm this law of the tithe. I want you to When you've gone into this land, I want you to take the first of your crops and your livestock and I want you to give it this tenth part, a tie, the tenth part of it, to the Levites to provide for them. Now, why did I just say that God reaffirmed this law rather than that He instituted it? Because if you were here for our study of Genesis, you remember that Abraham had already shown this and so had Jacob. Abraham, when he went to rescue Lot, when he was 
taken prisoner by several kings, rescued Lot, and on his return, he stopped in the valley of Sheveh, Sheveh, and I don't know how to say that, I'm not Hebrew, but however you say it, it was the valley there, and he met with Melchizedek, who was the high priest of the Most High God at that time. And anybody want to guess what portion of the spoils he set aside and gave to Melchizedek? Wow, i got some good students here. It was. It was 10%. And Jacob, many years later, several years later, followed in his grandfather's footsteps and uh, recognized that everything that he had was a gift from God, given to him by God, and as such said to God, I'm going to give back to you 10% of everything that you give me from here on out. Now, a question I had and one you might have today is, how did Abraham and Jacob know to give a tenth? How did they come up with that number? Well, I suspect that they had an interpersonal, close relationship with the one true and unchanging God who a few years later was going to reaffirm this practice for his people, his, the Levites, for the provision of the Levites. And he might have given them the inside track, you know, give them a little hookup. Hey, check this out, 10%, right? So, so we see in this... We see this tithe in the practice of the patriarchs and then we see the law of the tithe given at Sinai to Moses as this provision for those who were chosen by God to serve Him in the temple and in the tabernacle. But I want to make sure to point out to you here today that the tithe was not the only giving that was done by God's people in the Old Testament. You see, there were other aspects of the law that also dealt with giving. In fact, the commentaries I looked at while I was studying for this sermon and preparing for it were pretty much all in the same line. <clears throat> that if you put together the tithe and the sacrifices and the offerings and the gifts given at festivals and feasts and all the things that were involved in the sacrifice and the worship, the Israelites were not giving 10% back to God. They were giving more in the realm of 25 to 30%. That's right. Not just 10%. And that didn't include, I also want to point out that that didn't include any provision for the poor or the homeless or the needy. God spoke to those things as well. And He instituted other sorts of giving in, the, in and amongst His own people to care for those things. So I just want to lay this out consecutively. The Old Testament law stated that 10% of a person's annual salary should go back to the Levites to provide, the, to provide for them. That an additional 15-20% to 20% should go back into the practice of sacrifice and worship in its many different forms. And that after that, money, food, clothing, and housing should be provided by local communities for those individuals that lived in them and we're not able to, for whatever reason, farm or ranch and so provide for themselves. So now we begin to get a more complete picture, a more full picture of what giving was like in the Old Testament. And some of the purposes that giving fulfilled as provided for by the law. So now if we take that and we move forward into the New Testament, what do we see there about tithing or giving? Did Jesus have anything to say about the law? about giving, or about personal finances. Now I know that uh, sermons about money and giving 
probably aren't our favorites. You know, uh, we live in a culture that's very loud in its message that your money and what you do with it is all about you. It's very loud in that message. And that no one should be able to tell you how to use your, your money. And that if there's anyone who tells you that God has any expectation on you about your finances, you probably ought to run. As a result of that, most churches shy away from teaching about money and about finances and about what Christian giving is all about. That, however, is not scriptural. In Scripture, what we see over and over again is teachings about giving and finances. In fact, the Scripture tells us that the love of money is the root of all evil. If something is thought of by God to be so completely tied to sin as to be the root of all evil, we can be sure that He wants us to teach about it, preach about it, and live according to what we find in the Scriptures about it. When we look at the ministry of Jesus Christ here on earth, His ministry, His own ministry here, bears that out. Do you know that what we have recorded for us in the New Testament shows that 25 to 30% of everything that Jesus taught us was about finances and about giving and about how to use our money? So maybe we should follow His example. You know, Ricky, I think that's a good idea. Lou's not going to be here next week. Maybe you should start a five-part series on proper budgeting and financial responsibility. What do you think? Nah, seriously though, Jesus thought that... Ricky's like, nah, he's just turned around and walked back out. That was good. Seriously though, Jesus thought that, that proper biblical teaching about finances was important. So let's turn our attention to what he taught while he was here and what he has for us today. Jesus taught about finances in many different types of... uh, Arenas. He taught about finances as regard to paying taxes. We see that the locals came up to him and asked him if it was lawful, if it was biblically lawful or scripturally lawful for them to pay ta- the taxes that were, were required by Caesar. Jesus' answer was to, to ask them for the coin that was used to pay the taxes. And they gave it to him. And he asked them whose image is on this coin. And the answer was Caesar's. And what did he say? He said, give unto Caesar what is Caesar's. And then, although he was never asked about it at that point, he adds that they, and I think today we, should give to God what belongs to God. I think that's important. That's a thought you might see again later in this sermon, so hold on to it. Jesus teaches about tithing specifically, using that word only a few times. He mentions it in a parable that we have recorded in two separate Gospels, and I'm not going to take the time to look at that today. But the third place that it's mentioned in the New Testament, we see in Luke chapter 11, he comes down pretty hard on the Pharisees about the prideful things that they hold on to in their tithing. They were prideful in their tithing of all things, right down to the smallest herbs that they grew in their flower pots, while missing the real point of their Christian faith. I think we should look at this particular passage and see what Jesus has to teach here as I believe it speaks directly to the heart of the question and the matter that we're addressing today. If you have a Bible, you can turn with me to Luke chapter 11, 
in verse 42. If you don't, I think I have it. I do. I have it up on the screen. You can just follow along there. Jesus says, But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe the mint and the rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So what is Jesus saying here? I think simply what He's saying, if nothing else, is that simply tithing is not enough. You see, He was talking to the Pharisees. They were the most religious people of their time. They were amazingly legalistic in their approach to their religion. They would take scales and weigh out a tenth part or a tithe on everything. Every product that they had grow off their ground. Every animal of livestock, right down to the tiniest little herbs that grew in the flower pots on their porches. Now, I hope none of you are growing any herb on the flower pots on your porches. That's a whole other sermon. We're not going to get into that one today. Different kind of herb. <clears throat> and you know, they used this as a self-glorification and a self-justification. You know, they have little rap battles about it. Well, I tithe on this and I tithe on that and I tithe on the air I breathe and you pretty much can't beat that one. So that was the end of it. And Jesus teaches everyone who was sitting there then and He's teaching us in this room today that simply making sure that we set aside a tenth part on all that we make is not what glorifies God. He tells them that there are things that do glorify God Things like pursuing justice and loving God, but simply keeping the law of tithing, even in its most extreme way, doesn't glorify God in and of itself. Now, I want to make sure that I point out here that in this instance, Jesus in no way diminishes or does away with the law of tithing. Jesus here is in full support of tithing. He simply tells the Pharisees that it's not enough. Jesus here and in other passages where He teaches about giving in the New Testament holds true to a pattern that we see in His teaching, in His method of teaching throughout His New Testament ministry that we have recorded. Not just on areas of finances, but in all areas. And that is that in aspects of the law, keeping the letter of the law because of some overstimulated sense of self-righteousness, or because of a reaction to our feelings of guilt, is never glorifying to God. But rather the actions born out of a broken and contrite heart, actions that are overflowing from a heart thankful for the gift of salvation paid by Jesus on the cross, those actions that come as a result of recognizing the cost at which we have been redeemed, those actions are the ones that glorify God. I want, to, I want to take just a minute here. This is a freebie. This isn't part of what I prepared for this morning. But I had something kind of hit me this week. <clears throat> I was studying a verse and a passage in Scripture this morning. I mean, not this morning, but this week as a part of something else that I was looking at. And it says, the, the passage of Scripture says, it's talking about uh, sexual immorality. And it says, but do you not know that you are not your own, but you've been bought with a price? Therefore, glorify God in your bodies. And I was looking at that. And I'm not a student of Greek, so I can't look at the Greek word and see what it means in context. 
as it was written in the day that it was written. But I do do a couple of things in my own study. One is I use a Strong's Concordance and each Greek word in the New Testament is given a number and you can take that number and you can look at all the different places that that particular Greek word was used and how it was translated. And I usually do that and that gives me an idea or a concept of what that word meant to the people who used when they wrote it. And the other thing that I do is I look at a number of different translations of that same verse to see how wise men have taken that Greek concept and translated it. And I read one this week that said, not that you've been bought with a price, because that seems kind of voluminous, but it says you have been purchased at immeasurable cost. Cost beyond measure. Did you get that? I mean, how big is, is immeasurable? It's bigger than the national debt, I can tell you that. And that's pretty big. That's bigger than I can get my head wrapped around. But we've been purchased people at immeasurable cost. So hold, I mean, think about that. It's those actions that rise out of, be, of recognizing that we could never pay, that it took immeasurable cost by God Himself to redeem us. And as we look at Jesus throughout His teaching, throughout His earthly ministry, we see over and over again this concept that purely keeping the law is not the source of of our righteousness. Jesus is the source of our righteousness. And I think a passage of Scripture that demonstrates this, this thought process clearly for us in the context of what we're looking at today, the context of finances and tithing and giving, is the story of the rich young ruler and the interaction that he has with Jesus in Mark 10. I want you to open your Bibles and read with me in Mark 10, verses 17 through 22. It says that Jesus was setting out on His journey and a man ran up and knelt before Him and asked Him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now I just... If you do, do you, how do you inherit? That question in and of itself just always gets me. But He says, What do I, must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call Me good? No one is good except God alone. He goes on to say, You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And, the rich, he, and he said, the rich young ruler said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow Me. Disheartened by the saying, He, the rich young ruler, went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now let's start with that greeting. The rich young ruler starts out by calling Jesus good teacher, and Jesus responds and says, Why do you call Me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'd been the rich young ruler, I might just have backed down right there and gone, okay, cool, whatever. You know, you got me. You're right. But he doesn't. He doesn't heed the warning and he plows right ahead. So Jesus says, you know the law, the law of Moses. Keep the law of Moses. And what is the rich young ruler's response? Oh, Jesus, I know you said that no one is good but God, but you must not have met me. Because I'm good. Look at me. Look at how good I've been. 
before we sit here and get all judgmental about how slow he must have been or stupid to rise up and speak to Jesus that way, let's look at ourselves and see if we can relate. I mean, is that not what we do all the time? I mean, God, I know You said that no one but You is good. But seriously, look at me. Look how hard I'm trying to please You. I must be good. Or at least better than them. At this point, point at whoever or whatever it is that you tend to judge yourself against. I mean, don't we all have that someone or some group of people that establishes that baseline for us that we say, as long as I don't slip below that level, I'm doing all right. And Jesus has already said all that needs to be said. He says, no one is good but God. There is only one righteous. And that righteous is Jesus Christ. But Jesus does not destroy him right there for his arrogance and his self-righteousness. No, it's his self-righteousness. No, he says that, it, that he loved him. He wanted to teach him. He does the same thing for him that I hope he's going to do for us today. He looks right straight through that self-righteous righteous facade of his and he goes straight at his heart. See, where did he direct the rich young ruler next? He directed him to his idol. He directed him to that thing that he had set up effectively and efficiently in his heart as the true object of his affection. It was his money. He says, if you desire to show the fruit of true conversion, if you want to go to heaven, if you truly desire to glorify God, then sell all your earthly goods, give the resulting money to the poor, and when you've done that, come and follow me. So there it is. Jesus has wrapped this up in a sweet little package for us. And if you're here today and you're waiting for me to give you a number, a bottom line threshold for what is enough, a threshold for your giving that will be enough, there it is. Jesus said it. Black and white for all of us. Jesus said sell it all and give it all away. Now, I hear what you're saying. Did He just say all? Yeah, I did. Did Jesus really want the rich young ruler to sell it all and give it all away or was he just using this as a teaching point? I think the answer to that question is both. You see, Jesus loved the rich young ruler. He really did want to see him sell everything, give it all away and follow Jesus unequivocally, fully, completely. You see, Jesus is showing us as He was showing the rich young ruler that day what is the object of his faith? Faith has to have an object. And I want to ask you that here today. You know, what's the object of your faith? In what do you believe? Is it in God? In His love? And in His care? And in His ability to provide? <clears throat> or Christian, are you here today with your faith in the almighty American dollar? It's a crucial point, and I want you to see it clearly. Just like us here today in, in, this, in this sermon, in this point, the rich young ruler was looking for, what he was looking for was a baseline, a level below which he could no longer be understood to be righteous. He wanted a, a, a threshold for his religious behavior, a prescribed number. We want a prescribed number for our giving that if we stay above it, it puts us in the category of righteous so that He could look at us and look at God and so we can look at each other and look at God and say, 
I did it. I did enough. I've kept myself above that baseline, so look how righteous I am. And Jesus looks right directly through all that self-glorification. He says, even if you give it all, it will never be enough. Because your heart is corrupt. Your desire is self-glorification. And what needs to happen is Jesus needs to give us a new heart. One that is centered and focused on Him. One that seeks to glorify God. One that desires to know and love and worship Jesus. And when that happens, instead of seeking a number or a percentage by which we can justify ourselves in our own self-righteousness, in our own giving, in our own tithing, our hearts seek to find ways that we can glorify God with our finances and with our lives. Our attitude changes from one of how much can I keep for my own desires and pleasures to an attitude of how much can I invest in the kingdom of Jesus. How can I be more mature and disciplined in my finances so that I can give more and more? Mark Driscoll, in a sermon that he did on giving, said this, It's never about the dollar. It's always about the devotion. So the Holy Spirit works on us. And we begin to focus less and less on how much our money of our on how much of our money it seems that God is requiring or demanding of us, and our focus hones in on what God is doing all around us and how can we be part of it. As this happens within us, our attentions and our affections are moved away from our own happiness and pleasure and self seeking to seeking the will of God and reflecting his glory. We, we begin to demonstrate before our friends, our families, and our co-workers, and even the nations of the world, the glory of our awesome God. And how is it that any of this is even possible? It's all because God Himself demonstrated His love for us. A love that resulted in His giving of Himself for us. He demonstrated for us that it's not a function of the law that drives giving, but rather that true scriptural giving, real Christ-centered giving, is a function of love. You want to catch me up on my slides, Ron? That's, you got it. That's it. So this is going to be a fairly and a short, short and sweet point. But what is our concept of God? How does who God is define love for us? These are questions that would take us months to truly answer. But the pastors and preachers at King's have taught a number of sermons on them and I encourage you to go back and go through the podcast archives and listen to them. But the world's concept of a loving God is that God is love and therefore He cannot judge me and would probably not want me to be anything but happy all the time. If you spent much time in Scripture studying for yourself or sat under the teaching here for very long, you know that that is not how God defines Himself or how He demonstrates His love for His children. But you know what? We don't have to look very far to see what the true nature of God is and what the result of His love did. Let's take a minute to look at the most popular verse of all time. 
Oh, let's back that up one slide. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave. And I just want to stop us right there. I mean, did you catch that? Did you see that? Let that soak in. God loved sinners, so He gave. The true nature of God is that He is a loving God. That He loves even that which is unlovable, which is His enemy, which was us. And that the expression of that love was giving. So as we live our lives focusing on the fact that we are sinners, saved by the amazing gift of a graceful God, we are being by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, Scripture says, conformed to the image of Jesus. Jesus loves and as a result gives. So through this process of salvation and then being conformed in the image of God, we will also love and so as a result give. Giving in the Old Testament, as we've seen, was probably a function of a requirement of the law. But now we see that giving in the New Covenant, the New Testament, is as the result of love. Do you love Jesus? Do you worship Jesus? Do you see yourself being conformed into the likeness of Jesus? If so, then we must certainly find ourselves loving. Loving those around us. Loving family, friends, neighbors. And because of that love, we'll most definitely pursue new ways to be involved in the ministry and the mission of God. And we'll give. Give of our money. And that won't be enough, but we'll give also of our time. And we'll use our spiritual gifts for the building up and the edification of the church as we're taught in Scripture. We'll give and give and give and give and give. We'll no longer seek our identification in this world by our, to be identified by our earthly possessions. We won't want, won't want or need to be identified by the size of our house or where we live or the kind of car we drive or where we went to school or what degree we have. But rather, our lives will, we will want our lives and we will desire our lives and we will begin to see our lives identified by our giving and our commitment to Jesus Christ. Well, that's all well and good, you say to me, but what does this life that is identified by giving look like? I think we need to look at God. Start with God. It all begins with Him. It's all going to end with Him. So let's, let's start with God. We have been made by God in the image of God. You've heard us preach before here. You've heard the term imago Dei. And God is a giving God. So we are made or designed by God to give. I mean, you do recognize that God's a giving God, right? I mean, I hope you do. It's easy for us to read in Scripture that God owns everything, that He's got the cattle on a thousand hills, and that it all belongs to Him. And that everything that we have in our own possession is a gift from Him. And when we read it, we go, yep, sure enough, yeah, that's right. But God owns everything. I mean, does that reach down into the core of who you are and change how you think about things and how you react to things? 
God truly owns everything and He needs nothing. He's not looking to us for our gifts to satisfy something that is lacking in Him, but rather He has shared with us of His immeasurable wealth for the purpose of allowing us to invest in what He's doing and as a result of that, receive a reward. I mean, how awesome is that? One of the things that's core to what we believe here at King's Chapel and teach and preach, something you hear about all the time from this pulpit, is the Missio Dei, the mission of God. God is a God on mission. And if we understand that God is actively seeking and saving that which is lost, if we recognize even that just recently we were that lost, which He was seeking and saving, and if we recognize that He used some one or some group of people who were being obedient to Him to draw us to Himself, then our heart's desire will be to be on mission with Him and to be used by Him to do that for someone else. Let's take a a minute and look at what effect this has on our finances. Because, I mean, seriously, if we're going to be on mission with God, there's probably nothing in our lives that will affect more than our money. There's very little that we do on a day-to-day basis that does not have a direct effect on our finances. Most decisions we make have some reference point to money. How much is it going to cost? Can we afford this? Where's the money going to come from? And so if our lives become centered around the Gospel and we become more and more committed to the call on our lives to be focused on the mission of God, what we will see is that more and more of our finances will be used for the purpose of building the kingdom of King Jesus. I love the way Adrian Rogers, who is a pastor at Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis, Tennessee, for a number of years, said it. He said, A faith that has not found its way to your wallet probably has not found its way to your heart. Family, what is the focus of your life today? Has the good news of your redemption, the amazing gift of salvation, gotten a hold of you? Do you see Jesus as King? Are your finances a way to compare yourself to your neighbor? You know, what do they have that I don't? Or are they a way for you to reach your neighbors with what you have that they don't? Jesus Christ. It's what they desperately need. A life of giving. A life of investing in and participating in the mission of God. A life lived for the purpose of the spread of the Gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. A life where we recognize that everything we have is a gift given to us by God for the purpose of using it to glorify Him. What an awesome gift. And yet we're being called to be the ones used by God to bring His ministry and His mission to pass. What a weighty responsibility. Uh Uh-oh. I just used the R word. Responsibility. This is where most of us go, darn, I was just getting comfortable. He had to go there, didn't he? Well, fear not. God is good. He's given us much in Scripture for the purpose of handling this responsibility, even in the use of our finances. 
Let's start with an easy one. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Okay, I said it was an easy one. That's huge, right? So where do we start with that? What does that look like functionally? What does it feel like in real life? So let's unpack it a little bit and see. What Paul's doing here is encouraging us to be aware of all aspects of our life. Everything we do or say. Everything that we participate in. Even down to the most mundane survival levels of eating and drinking. And evaluate the value that they have in God's eyes. Okay, you say that's good. What does this have to do with my money? Well, can you eat or drink without using money? Can you get dressed without having money to buy clothes? Wow, here's some pretty low-level, basic life things that we can evaluate. Ready? Does my diet glorify God? Ouch. Does my wardrobe glorify God? This is what Paul is encouraging us to do. He's encouraging us to begin to evaluate our every action so our every expenditure and so our every expenditure based on how it promotes the kingdom of King Jesus. That's not all. Scripture also directs other aspects of giving like support for the local church. We saw that in the Old Testament in the tithe. It was the support for the pastors and the priests in the temple and the tabernacle. And he carries it forward in Galatians 6.6. Forward in Galatians 6.6. And it says, And let the one who is taught the Word share all good things with him who teaches. In context, it's saying that that those who devote themselves to full-time preaching and teaching should be supported by those who are learning from and being taught by them. Scripture teaches us that our giving ought to sometimes be spontaneous and at the leading of the Holy Spirit. I want you to open your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And I'm only going to read a few verses. But as you go home and you think about this, please do, first of all, go home and think about this. Please focus, spend some time and focus on this. Community group leaders, read 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 are a wonderful couple of chapters when it relates to giving. But I just want to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Paul is, says to the Corinthians, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. And I want to spend a lot of time in it right now, but Macedonia was in, in dire trial. And they were, you know, had no money. They were destitute. And it says... For in severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. So what we see here is a church that is destitute, in desperate trial, hearing of the trial of another church and joyously out of the overflow of their hearts wanting to give and provide and take care of and gift. So we see a spontaneous and even a sacrificial giving in 2 Corinthians 8. 
And then on the other hand, the Scripture teaches us to be disciplined in our giving. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2, Paul encourages the Corinthians to put something away at the first of the week, to be prepared, to plan ahead, to, to give based on provision. So we can certainly carry that forward into the modern church today that we need to give according spontaneously according to what God presents in front of us and we also need to be disciplined and ordered in our giving. If we take those two last teachings, we can balance them together and build a picture of giving according to a plan as God has provided for us and in the moment finding someone in need and giving spontaneously and sacrificially. And why do we do these things? We do them because this is what glorifies God. And as the, as the Holy Spirit continues to work on us and conform us to the image of Jesus, as we focus our hearts and minds on the Gospel, as we continue to search out and try to wrap our heads around what it cost God to work our salvation for us, we will respond by disciplining ourselves in the use of everything God has gifted us with. Life, health, family, house, car, and most certainly our finances. So that we will be more fully and more effectively involved in the mission of God. And our lives will most certainly become identified by giving. So, I want to try to wrap this up by presenting a, a couple of last thoughts. First, I want to talk about a little word that you haven't heard me use yet today that's almost always involved in a Christian conversation about finances. Stewardship. You ever heard that word before? We usually use it in a sentence something like this. God wants me to be a good steward of my money. Well, wait, okay. There's no such thing. Because you see, a steward doesn't have any money. He uses the money of the manager or the owner that has placed him in stewardship over it. It's not their money. It's not your money. It's not my money. It's God's money. Not 10%. Not 25%. Not 50%. All of it. And God has made us stewards of what He's put us in possession of for one reason and one reason only. And that is to give Him glory. To be used for glorifying Him. To be used for the building of the kingdom of King Jesus. Are you alive and well and here today? Great gift from God. Do you have a family? Wonderful gift from God. Do you have a little money or a lot? Great. Gift from God. His perfect design and desire for you, for you is that you would use it all for His glory. And nothing glorifies God more than when sinners come to repentance, place their faith in the perfect work of Jesus on the cross, and are added to the family and the kingdom of King Jesus. D.A. Carson said it this way. He says, The question is, how can I manage my affairs so that I can give more 
is surely a better question than what's the correct interpretation of the tithe so I can do whatever is required and go on with my life. Family, today is Communion Sunday. And as the band comes up, we're about to come together as a family around the table of the Lord and partake in communion. If you're here today and you're not sure about your place in the family of God, you don't know for sure that God has redeemed you from your sins through the work of Jesus on the cross, please don't participate. Just sit down. We won't think any less of you. But this table is for the family of God. And if you're here and you know that you're a member of the family of God by the work of Jesus on the cross, please join us. Taking a short look at a subject today that is all-encompassing, our finances, the money that, that God has made us stewards of. And as I said earlier, we can do almost nothing in America today that's not in some way money-driven or money-oriented. God loves us and has redeemed us by His grace, but He does continue to have requirements on us or expectations of us. And I'll be the first to admit that I've not been faithful in utilizing all the gifts that God has entrusted to me solely for His purposes and for His glory. Have you? If not, now is the time of confession and repentance. I'm going to pray for us as a family as a family of God, and then please just sit there silently in reflection, wherever you are. Confess any area of your life in which you're not, you have not been faithful to God. Repent of it. Repent of any selfish behavior or intent that keeps you in, uh, participating in the mission of God. And when you're done confessing and repenting of whatever has hindered you in your relationship with God, then let's come together in joy and celebrate the table of the Lord. Father in heaven, the issue of money and finances and giving hits us pretty deep in our hearts. There's no aspect of our lives that doesn't have something to do with what You have given us, what You have gifted us with to be stewards over. So often we get caught up and trapped in our own happiness, our own pleasure, our own desires, what we want to do, what we want to accomplish, what we want to see happen. And we forget that <clears throat> it's all about You. That You purchased us at immeasurable price, Lord. Thank You. <clears throat> Thank You for the truth of what we are about to celebrate here. That Jesus on the night that He was betrayed, had one last supper with His disciples and told them that they should practice it in honor and remembrance, in memory of Him. Father, please take our hearts, take our minds, focus us in on the things that we need to be in confession and repentance over, and then give us Your joy as we come and celebrate this last supper with You. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.